Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm in the Capital Club community, visit our website at www.excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome back to the Capital Club Podcast. Today I'm here with Diana Chambers. Diana, thank you so much for joining us, especially I think you might get the award for coolest, most exotic location that I've recorded somebody with here in Switzerland today, correct? That's correct. I have a 180 degree panoramic view of the Rhone Alps. So I am a very fortunate person. (laughs) Very different from the Tennessee Valley out my window. Diane is a highly respected family wealth mentor and philanthropic advisor who established her business in the United States in 2002 and subsequently in Switzerland, where she now resides. She brings her work experience as a third generation member of a UK business family to which she added corporate strategic planning and charitable leadership roles. She's also the author of True Wealth, Letters on Money, Life, and Love, as well as her latest piece, Money Wisdom Unlocked, Understanding Trauma as a Key to Financial Behavior. And the latter piece is where we're going to be spending a lot of our time. I really enjoyed it. Trauma and wealth are not typically spoken about in the same sentence. What spurred you or what was the genesis behind writing an essay, a long-form essay, bringing those two concepts together? Actually, I think trauma and wealth are sometimes put in the same sentence, but that's when there has been a traumatic event around wealth where someone has potentially been disinherited or has lost everything. You know, so in that sense, we would think of trauma and wealth being connected. But I, as you know, from having read Money Wisdom Unlocked, I'm looking at the way in which our 
money behavior, when it doesn't really serve us or serve our relationships, when the money behavior is really symptomatic of something else, which in my understanding is underlying trauma. And I've been studying in this space, the trauma space for about six years now. And once I became aware of how it operates, when a very overwhelming experience happens, and then we have a response to that, the response is the trauma. And it creates blocks in our nervous systems. There are parts of ourselves that we cut off because we can't deal with the overwhelm of the experience, etc. And it really makes complete sense that would be evidenced in our financial lives, which, you know, are so much a part of our everyday activities. So that's how it was birthed. Right. And, and you talk about this in the essay, how our body's reaction to trauma is a survival instinct where certain parts of our anatomy, be they physical, mental, emotional, are cordoned off from the rest of the system to allow the rest of the system to manage through that shock. And you, you referenced this in the essay, so I think it's okay to go here on this conversation. A lot of this essay is informed by your own personal experiences. You know, would you feel comfortable referencing some of the own journey that you went through and how that trauma informed the work that you do today? For sure. So in terms of overt financial trauma, for example, I had a very difficult inheritance experience when I was 40. I had to negotiate with my father over one family business that I had a shareholding in and my older sister for the second family business that I had a shareholding in. And for whatever reason, my father really didn't want me to receive the full value of my shareholding. And that was very challenging because I was left trying to understand what does it mean to be part of this family? Why does my father not want me to have this? And how do I understand this? So I took the better part of a decade, I would say, really coming to terms with that. And actually, that was the genesis of the wealth mentoring side of my business, because that experience was so challenging for me that I really felt that I would have benefited so much from having someone who could just accompany me on that and who could help me to make sense of it. And when I saw that there was this gap that I had experienced, I thought, well, this is a gap that I can help other people with, not just around, you know, very challenging situations, but being someone who accompanies others through their financial journey. So that's one example. Another one is I actually was held up at gunpoint when I was 32. If you ask me to tell you the exact story, I could tell you precisely because it is etched in my memory. But it obviously caused a shock in my system. And I changed certain of my patterns to really provide more security for myself after that. One of which would be around my behavior with money. How do I make sure that I'm safe? So those are just two stories. When I was reading the essay, it triggered in my mind conversations I've had with my father-in-law, who is a trauma surgeon. He's a level one trauma surgeon at Vanderbilt. He's retired now. And he would always get upset when people would talk about having a car accident because an accident is the abdication of responsibility. And he would always talk about how trauma is a disease. So to use the car wreck metaphor, sure, you were speeding and drinking 
but that is a symptom of the fact that you are very likely a risk-taking behavior person, maybe poorly educated, don't have resources, all of these things that your community imbibes into you and that your family generates into you from a genetic perspective go into predisposing you to being in a traumatic incident. So using that as a parallel to the work that you're doing, you talk a lot about how we inherit many of these genes, traits, characteristics from not just our parents, but grandparents and thereon, and that our family and how they interact also impacts our reaction to these traumatic situations. Could you maybe unpack that a little bit more about how these are not just isolated incidents that happen in a vacuum? Yeah. So taking a step back, in my understanding, there are three primary sources of trauma. One of them is, as you've just outlined, what I would call ancestral trauma, what has been passed down to us through the generations. So the scientific research that is showing that indeed traumas are passed down through multi-generations. And so one of the things that I think when I'm talking with parents of wealth, families of wealth, what else are you passing down to the kids in addition to the money? So to have a little bit more awareness about that, that's one of the sources of trauma. A second is collective trauma, when a trauma happens to a group of people. So you've all experienced the same traumatic event. And that could be, for example, climate change, where we've got climate change refugees, wars, genocides, school shootings, you know, all of those would be collective traumas. And then we've also got individual trauma when something happens to one of us. So that's what you were just saying about actually in life today, not just what gets passed down, but in life today, what happened to us as I got held up at gunpoint, for example, or a serious accident. Any of those would be a traumatic event that then ends in a trauma response in our system that creates some internal frozenness. So where it leads me is to say that all families and certainly the clients that I work with and the families of wealth really benefit from addressing what I would think of as relational health. How is my relationship with myself? How much healing have I done? How conscious am I of how I make my choices and what my underlying motivations are? And then how well can I be in relationship with other members of my family and my extended family and my friends? So I think it's a primary building block for thriving in any family and certainly also in families of wealth. When we talk to family office professionals on the show, it often comes up that money has energy associated with it. And that energy can be either positive or negative, depending on how that wealth is is put to use and how the narratives within the family weave into that wealth. Would you mind touching on just your thoughts about the trauma associated with the narratives that some of these families tell themselves? You reference, you know, your own as you were raised that you know debt was an evil thing. And that impacted you for the rest of your life. I mean, the way that we talk about money really does impact further generations and and has, you know, knock-on effects much farther down the line for all of us. Yeah, money is inherently neutral, but we have loaded it with symbolism, meaning, and emotional weight. And so it's going to represent different things for different people. 
So, yes, we're going to see it potentially be burdensome to some people because of what it symbolizes for them. Or it could be, you know, a real creative resource for others for what it symbolizes for them. I think that if we choose to look at our understanding of money and our experience around money, we can then have it traced back to the underlying belief systems that we have formed or the underlying experiences that have created that understanding of money. So that's why I think that if something is not going great in terms of our relationship to money, take a good look at it because not only can you resolve that, but you can also resolve whatever is underlying in my worldview, that would be trauma in some form or another. So I think it's a courageous step to look at our challenging money behavior. I like to apply two basic principles to it. One is curiosity, because I just think it's very intriguing. Why are we doing what we're doing and how is it serving us? And the second is compassion, knowing that each one of us is doing the very best that we can do. And the more awareness and the more clarity we get about what is driving us and what the undercurrent really is, then the freer we can become. So for me, it's actually a really exciting journey. I know I've been on this journey since literally my teenage years. And I'm never going to arrive because there's always going to be more, but I feel like I'm getting, you know, increasingly aware of what it is that's my underlying drive. It's a journey <laughs> that we're all on. And based on the talking points in your essay, it seems like the pathway to having constructive and healthy conversations about money with family members really starts with you yourself and getting comfortable with who you are, understanding that trauma that occurred in your life. You talk about money acting as a mirror to ourselves. What are some other uh, you know, very concrete, specific steps that we can all take to have a healthier relationship with money in the context of our families? First of all, I just want to do one quick step back, which is to say about trauma, many of us would say we are not traumatized. If we were to ask the average person that we meet, you know, have lunch with or whatever, we would say, are you traumatized in any form? Most people would say, me? No, not. I'm not. But I just want to differentiate between what I call big T traumas and small T traumas, because I don't think anyone is exempt from having had some form of traumatic experience. So this is actually universally applicable. It's not just someone who's, you know, been in a car accident or been subject to something violent, whatever, all of us. So I just wanted to say that to start with. And then, yeah, what I feel is helpful is for each one of us to get as conscious as we can about what has shaped us. Who am I truly? And if we're talking about the financial space, then that's really about the money messages that we have received and the belief systems that we have shaped around those. Trauma is another of the big inputs into who am I and what shaped me. Another one would be around our motivations. Are they intrinsic or extrinsic? Are we doing things for the sake of those activities themselves where we really thrive, 
have enjoyment, etc., or are we seeking some sort of external reward because of it? So if we start looking at these different dimensions, we can do that for ourselves. Hopefully our other family members are also doing it. You can't require anybody to do that work. But my hope would be that if I do it and the people around me can see that it leads to increased freedom and increased joy in my life, hopefully they'll want more of the same thing themselves. So yeah, I think that each one of us being responsible for our own well-being and bringing that to the family is really important. And as we're wealth holders, that's a huge responsibility in its own right. So to be able to take responsibility, we need to have got a level of conscious awareness about what we're doing with the wealth. So let's segue with that last statement, because you talk about how inheritors of wealth have a special relationship with trauma. You also include women, which I want to get to at some point, but I want to focus on the inheritor complex. What is it about this, what many people would view as a very positive set of facts? What is it about being this inheritor of this wealth that goes beyond just you know, having more zeros in the bank account? that people need to be aware of? It is a big responsibility. And if you are an inheritor in a family of wealth, you've got a whole series of other topics to address. Who are you going to be within that family when there's such large presence from the wealth creator, whatever generation they were in, and the people that have sustained the wealth since then? And how do you carve out and shape your own unique legacy within that family. And then that brings us to the tension of how do I belong to this family? All of us want to belong, but how do I also fully become everything that is mine to become? And will the family facilitate and encourage that? Or to belong to this family, do I have to compromise in some way? And what compromises do I make and for what reasons? So there are you know, detailed nuances like that. I think that quite often we might hear, is the wealth a blessing or a burden? You know, that would be a phrase. And I think that that's really not the right lens to look at it because the wealth is, the question is, what's our relationship to it? And how are we going to take responsibility for it? We were born into this family how are we going to you know, evolve within that? Do you think it's possible for somebody to have an identity separate from the wealth? As an inheritor, you mean? Correct. You could say that the wealth is an external dimension of who we are, but it's not our internal, interior chosen expression of self. So, yes, I would say that we can choose who we want to be and how we want to express that, and we have the wealth. I was talking to a professional colleague just yesterday, literally, and he was referring to the wealth as an invisible companion that goes with us wherever we are. Is it our identity? Doesn't have to be. And I think that gets partly to the heart of what's a healthy relationship with money. Are we defined by the money? Or do we have our own identity? And then we have this resource that is also part of, you know, our larger expression. How are we then going to handle that? So, yeah, I would say it is 
possible to have them two separate, but often we meld them, you know? Right. It, it, it's when you talk about inheritors, it seems impossible, even in social settings, to describe them without referencing that money, right? It just, it seems to be part of their DNA on some level. And, you know, I think it's hard for people who aren't in that circumstance to understand, to your point, that it can be a burden because when you're born into a family, you certainly didn't ask for any of this. It was (laughs) thrust upon you and you'd need to, in my experience and opinion, get yourself right before you can step into that identity because it, it can be ruinous to many people. It can be overwhelming. Totally agree. So we're going straight back to the core piece here, which is who am I and how am I going to be as whole and clear and conscious as I can possibly be? So let's talk about the specific issues that women of wealth have within this context. A topic that is getting rightfully much more exposure, but certainly not to the extent that it needs to be. What specific or particular issues do women of wealth have within this conversation, this larger conversation regarding trauma, identity, self-actualization, those things? Yeah. I think it's helpful to recognize that the financial context as we have it today has, for the most part, been shaped by men. So we have a financial expression and a way of, you know, accumulating and counting and doing all of those things that is very determined from a male perspective. Women might have inherently a very different relationship to money, much more interest in it being a community resource and those sorts of topics. So initially, it's challenging for women because the context is not a cultural context that they shaped. It's one that they have to come into. Some women thrive in it, and that's fine. Other women struggle more because of the context. And so, you know, we can say that women can be, for example, really good investors, but that's not typically a role that many women see themselves as being significantly successful in. Obviously, it's great that we've got more role models that have been emerging in the last decade or so, especially, but those are some of my thoughts about it. I was at a a, a YPO event in New York City a few months ago, and it was a financial services network event. And it was a fantastic speaker lineup. And and one of them was the head of a major Swiss wealth management firm, old partnership. We're talking 300, 400 years. And she was the first woman to ever head the organization ever in history. And she gave a presentation. It was very good. We had dinner as a large group and kind of had a a drink with her and a small group of people afterwards when she was a little bit more open. And there's a lot more to it than just the, the outward facing persona, the internal politics, the embedded, uh, you know, to your point, masculine traits 
that have been in the wealth management business for so long, if there's somebody in your life and if there's somebody listening and there's a woman inheritor within their network or family, what are some actionable things that people can do to help ease that conversation or ease that transition? You know, just any thoughts or advice. I'm married to the oldest member of G2 and, you know, she struggles with the same thing. She does not have a finance background. She's often the only woman in the room. I mean, are, are there some things that we can, as a community, help to have these conversations occur? I'm just reflecting on where to propose because each one is so customized. It's really around the particular woman and what her life experience has been, what her family dynamics are. The fact that you're saying your wife is often the only woman in the room. I was one of three girls. So we were all educated to be like men, to have successful careers and those sorts of things. So it wasn't the same dynamic in my family. And I would propose that, again, it's about helping the woman to really become confident in who she is and that she has a big contribution to make. And then that means asking the system that she's within to be open to her contribution. And how open is that system to hearing the voice of the woman or the voice of the women? And how curious are they about what the women can contribute? So there there are two things that could happen, but it's changing old patterns and really encouraging the women to step forward without losing themselves in the process. So my own story around this, I just said, you know, I was educated to be like a man. And so my first real career move was I was running the long range planning department of a large building materials company in the UK. And I was the only woman hired into management when I was hired. And I was the only woman in the planning department. And I was treated to all intents and purposes like a man. And they even called me an honorary chap. So that was how I was accepted. I had to take on the role of the man. And then in my early 30s, I made a switch and was in the nonprofit world And it was then that I had a really profound experience and I realized that I needed to reclaim my feminine, that in my 20s, in order to succeed, I had essentially given away a lot of my feminine capacity. Now I had to reclaim it and say, you know what, I shouldn't have given that up. It's such an inherent and important part of me. So helping women to stay true to themselves and succeed is, I think, the sort of really nuanced edge of this. It's not what we want them to succeed. We want them to succeed as themselves. Want to learn more about investing in alternatives? Get started by joining the Capital Club, where you'll get exclusive access to alternative investment opportunities, premium content and education, and an affinity peer-to-peer network of industry professionals. You can sign up by going to our website at www.excelsiorgp.com. Right. And, and that's how I've, I've tried to approach it recently. And having these type of conversations has been really helpful, actually, 
on the show with my relationship with my wife, because to your point, I've got to try to be better recognizing the fact that she has all these different identities and they all need to be firing on folders as a wife, as a mom, as a woman, as an inheritor. And it's almost, we all wear a lot of different hats, but for a, a woman in this position, it's like two or three extra jobs. And it can be very difficult to keep all those plates spinning in the air. And what I've kind of tried to do is just recognize that and be open to talking through it. But there's no, to your point, everyone's different. Every situation is different. Every family is different. There's no concrete rules around it. But it is a bit of a relief to know that at least we're having the conversation on some level these days, which I'm sure is much different than when you were you know, coming up through the business world. Yeah. Well, first of all, I just want to say she's very fortunate to have you as a husband because... because can I get that in, in writing? Maybe yeah, yeah. I'll give you a little <laughs> The other thing I would say is that I don't think it's any surprise that in my business practice, I actually work with quite a number of next generation female family members from very significant business families. And invariably, the conversation is, where do I fit in the family? Where do I fit in the business? How do I navigate the fact that, you know, I'm going to take time out, have children, do this, that, and the other? Will I still be respected within the business context? So I see that, and it doesn't surprise me that these very successful, really successful women, and the ones that I work with are typically in their 30s and 40s, you know, that they're asking these questions, trying to navigate exactly what you're saying, keeping all the balls spinning. So let's talk a little bit more about the work that you do. The question I typically ask is, when's the right time to pick up the phone and call you? What's the fact pattern look like? What does the timing look like? What is the situation where it makes sense to bring you into the fold and have you around what I always refer to as kind of the kitchen table, like for these hard conversations or these Mm-hmm. pivot moments within a family? Well, thanks for asking. If a family is new to wealth, say they've had a liquidity event, then ideally I'm brought in right at the beginning so that I can help them to figure out what they don't know and help them to avoid whatever pitfalls are coming up. They obviously want their entire advisory team to be in place. Unfortunately, Sometimes families will say, well, we need to sort out the estate planning and the investing, and then we'll focus on the family stuff. And in my experience, that's not optimal because all these tracks should be running parallel. So it's valuable to bring me in or, you know, another of my colleagues from early on in such a process because we can help surface things like values and intentions I'll never forget one time when I was with a family and we had literally more than half a dozen lawyers in the room and we were talking about the estate planning and and the process was in motion and one of the lawyers suggested something and then the client looked to me and said, Diana, is this what we said we wanted? Because it had just started to, it was like, you know, a ship going in one direction and it had gone one degree off course And it was going to end up in a very different place if it didn't course correct right then. And they were smart enough to go, you know, that's not what we articulated as our intention. So let's course correct. So certainly in a new liquidity situation, in an ongoing one, there's often, in an ongoing wealth situation, there's often transition points 
you know, the death of an older generation family member, which means that something is going to shift in the next generation or, you know, marriages that change, whatever. And again, as soon as possible in that situation, because, you know, hypothetically, let's take the death of an older generation family member. Ideally, they've done all of the groundwork, which will mean that their next generation are going to be able to pick everything up seamlessly after they die. But invariably, that's not the case. (laughs) So if they were, you know, really thinking about how is my next generation going to thrive, not just survive, how are they going to thrive, then hopefully they would introduce some of these conversations before that transition needed to happen. So yeah, the main point is at the beginning, whatever it is. Yeah, the talking points I bring up ad nauseum on the show. (laughs) One, as a former attorney, any good litigator will tell you that most of these issues could have been resolved if you had better corporate counsel on the front end when you put these things together. And then the second one is, it's very rarely the investment side of the house that makes families blow up. It's much more often the internal uh, internal personal dynamics, the qualitative issues, the emotional sensitivities that go on the back burner that ultimately cause these kind of schisms and failures. Have, have you experienced the same throughout your professional career? Absolutely. I, I say I refer to financial IQ, cognitive intelligence, and financial EQ or emotional intelligence. And I think that they're both very important, but as you say, it's the lack of financial EQ that is most likely to blow a situation up, not not a lack of financial IQ. So yeah, I for sure see that. Is it possible <laughs> to be, I don't know, I, I don't like using the word achieve. My wife tells me that that goes against the concept of happiness, but have you seen clients, have you yourself experienced happiness working in parallel with the wealth? Well, yes, I have seen it. (laughs) Before I've seen it. It it is out there. It it is out there. And in fact, I'm going to be giving a big talk next week. And my opening sentence is, unfortunately, we see so much lack of fulfillment and unhappiness, even when there's more than enough resource to do anything. Why is this? And to my way of thinking, it gets back to the relational health piece. How comfortable am I in my own skin? How comfortable are my family members in their skin? Do we connect well? You know, so it's both interior connection and exterior connection. And so absolutely it's possible. And that's what I seek to help my clients do, to do this really gracefully. And so I will coach them through how to prepare for and then how to have what they might otherwise think of as very difficult conversations. They may be thinking, oh, I could either damage or lose a relationship if I have this conversation. But my thought is you will damage or lose a relationship if you don't have the conversation. So how can we do this as gracefully and skillfully as possible? And that will then lead to greater freedom within the family and greater enjoyment of the wealth, et cetera, et cetera. It's good to hear that exists out there. I mean, within this population, as a I think from the outside looking in, most people think, oh, the money will solve the problems and there won't be challenges. But unfortunately, a lot of the people I know within this community are not very happy people. And so it's really nice to hear that you can help people reach that kind of that place. Do you mind just 
talking about some other maybe consistent fact patterns or characteristics you've seen amongst people who do have this corpus of assets and are able to be, you know, happy (laughs) working individuals. It gets down to what I refer to as our relationship with money. So each one of us has a relationship with money, much like we might have a relationship with food or alcohol or, you know, any number of other things. And so how healthy is that relationship with money? Do we just, you know, hold it in our hand or do we grasp it? And those of us who have actually worked on holding it loosely and gently are going to be a lot happier than those that are grasping it. So that's part of the work. What is my relationship with money? And it gets back to the trauma piece. You know, am I operating out of scarcity? And therefore I'm trying to accumulate. I might be greedy. I might be fighting over it. I might be doing any of those sorts of things. Or am I really quite free at this that I know that I don't have to grasp more of it. That's one major piece is our relationship with money because money is almost like a third party in other relationships. It's like, you know, siblings could be having a conversation and money is there at the table too. Spouses could be having a conversation and money is there at the table too. So how comfortable is my relationship with money and how comfortable is the relationship with money that other family members have. So I was working with one family with three children in their thirties. And I asked each of the children to describe if money was a person in the room, what would they look like and where would they be sitting? And it was absolutely fascinating. You know, they would be sitting over in the corner, crouched down, you know, or they would be an elderly guy or whatever they would be. What is my relationship with money? And how am I going to get that relationship to the point where actually money's sitting right across the table from me and we're having a good chat, you know, not stuck over in the corner, not catching my eyes, you know? So there are ways to start getting into that subject. What are things that you have found that you can do in your everyday life, be it physical, mental, emotional practices that bring you peace? Oh, for me, uh, I have a meditation practice that I really value. And I try to be faithful to that every day. And I really so appreciate being able, I take an annual silent retreat for a week every year. So how long, how long is the retreat? It's, it's a week. You're silent for a week. Mm-hmm. Wow. It's wonderful. It's an amazing opportunity. And I go back to do it to remind me when I've gone off my own track a little bit. That just helps me reestablish the direction that I want to take. I also work with my own counselor. And I am very fortunate to have someone who is extremely skilled in terms of trauma understanding. So All I have to do is take one tiny little nugget from a week when I have noticed that I just was slightly off and we can take a whole hour figuring out, just teasing it apart so that I can be more conscious and catch it quicker the next time, you know? So I surround myself with resource people. And to me, that makes complete sense. 
Well, Diane, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. This has been great. You were very generous to take some time on your Friday afternoon. If people are interested in engaging with you to work with you directly with a family or a, a family-owned business or the speaking engagements that you do, well, what's the best way for them to get in touch? Thanks for asking. Email, very easy. I'm Diana, D-I-A-N-A, at dianachambers.com. And I would really like to invite anyone who's interested to go to the homepage of my website, which is also dianachambers.com, to download a free PDF of the essay, Money Wisdom Unlocked. It's on the homepage. And I just really want to get the information out, which is why I've made it available in that form. And yeah. Yeah, we'll be sure to include the links in the show notes to the website and the article that I referenced that is terrific, as well as your content information. And thank you so much for joining us and I hope you have a wonderful weekend. Thank you so much. I appreciate it and wish you the same. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Capital Club. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review and stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.